Going presently through the flying hour. This is the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. Welcome to the first episode ever of the Gargsville Podcast. This is your host, Gargs Allard, and this is my world. This is your world. Many worlds within worlds, actually. But ultimately, I don't have the deed to this world, and neither do any of you last time I checked. We're all just kind of paying rent here. So, fellow tenants, how's it going? Well, I'm doing pretty good, as you know, as well as you can expect in this pandemic and changing times. But I kind of always live in my own little bubble anyway. Just that uh, the bubble seems a little more threatened these days than it used to. So while we can still connect on this plane of existence, I have to remind myself that I am here to serve. So who better to serve than those who have taken the time to listen to my podcast? So thank you very much. Some of you might know me for some of the radio shows that I host on WGOTLP Gainesville, 100.1 FM, or from Power Pop Portal, which I hosted on Rock 104 back almost 10 years ago. I actually got hooked up with WGOT from my former program coordinator or director, Glenn Richards, at Rock 104. He also taught me at UF, and he allowed me to do a show called Power Pop Portal, which I started there in 2011. And I met him downtown, and I told him how I really wanted to get back into radio because I was only doing a few shows here and there and some interviews and he connected me up with a community radio station here in Gainesville, WGOTLP. And I, I kind of had met Fred Souter before, who's worked there for 13 years. And I got to meet some of the other people involved with the station. And I love working with them. And uh, fortunately, I've been able to do three shows since 2018 there. I continued Power Pop Portal. I do a show called the Gargsville Radio Hour where sometimes I do interviews and sometimes it's a music theme show. And I also do a show called the Gainesville Grooves, which features local music connected to Gainesville from both now and in the past. So one thing about the Gargsville Radio Hour and all those other shows is they're one hour long. There's FCC regulations attached to them. So if there's any expletives, swear words, cuss words in any of the songs, I have to silence them or take them out. And I found that I really didn't have time, whether I was doing an interview or whether I was playing music, I didn't have a time to kind of express myself. So I thought that a podcast would be really good to do. And here I am. So for most weeks, six days a week, I do Uber. That's how I contribute to the household. My wife is a registered nurse. And on Sundays, I generally take the day off. And in order to let everybody know who I come in contact with, whether it be my family or friends or whatever, I put a Grateful Dead shirt on. At least that's what I did today. And I'm basically signaling, signaling to everyone to back off. I am doing whatever the free I want to do today. But honestly, it's just kind of a fantasy of mine to put the shirt on because I don't really get pressured to do much of anything unreasonable. So our guest today is Mr. Ken Solomon. He and I go back like 38 years. I met him in 1982 in Providence, Rhode Island, when I was 18 years old. And he's six years older than me, so he was like 24 at the time. Now I'm 56 and he's 62. <laughs> 
He's one of the sanest, most intelligent people I know. He has a very good sense of humor, yet he has a very serious analytical side to him. So he's been kind of like a mentor to me, a big brother or a young uncle or someone of that sort. And we have continued on with our friendship, kind of centered around the, the Hare Krishna community. Me much more on the outskirts of it and him more directly involved. With his wife, Deborah Solomon, he's been working over 20 years providing cows shelter at a cow sanctuary in Alachua, Florida, known as Save the Cow or also known as Holy Cow Alachua. I have talked to him a little bit about that before uh, in an interview on the Gargsville Radio Hour, but today we're going to talk more about his involvement at the University of Florida. He has been a librarian there since 2006. When we talked to him last time, he was talking about the food waste that was going on during the pandemic, and he was giving suggestions about how maybe we could not throw away the food, but actually feed people with it. It's kind of a novel concept. And you can check my interview out with him on Mixcloud under the Gargsville Radio Hour. So this time he's come back to talk a little bit more about the situation with the pandemic, which involves the students coming back to Gainesville. And this is also appropriate and relevant for other parts of the country where students are returning to universities. So Ken being the astute analytical kind of guy he is in following local politics here, he noticed a kind of discrepancy with the administrators at the University of Florida in terms of how they originally planned to deal with the students coming back in terms of COVID testing and what they decided to do later without really telling anyone about their change in policy. And as a result of their change in policy, it appears that Gainesville and the students and everyone else who lives around here are going to have more risk of catching the virus. Before we get to Ken in the upcoming segment of our show, first we're going to go out to Southern California, where another friend of mine, A.V., is living. And there's a big heat wave going on out there. And I just want to find out how he's doing and what the scene looks like in Southern California. Hey, man, what's happening? Can you hear me? Hello. Man, A.V., you sound so much better than the last time. Really? Oh, there's no comparison. The other one, I don't even think we could have done an interview. That's interesting. Usually um, putting the phone, talking directly into the phone is the thing that uh, is the clearest. But uh, You sounded like you were like falling asleep. Really? Or, or you were old and you were maybe on too much medication or something. I don't know. Well, I am a bit old, some would say. But um, did I sound older than I am? You just sounded kind of like punch drunk. Punch drunk. <laughs> like you had, you know, too many fights with Joe Frazier or something. <laughs> I am the greatest. <laughs> so what's going on in California, man? Ah, there's a big, usual. There's a big heat wave, right? Oh, there's a massive heat wave right now. Um, I believe, I have to double check it, uh, but I believe we hit like 95 today. And you're in no, San Diego. And yeah. from what I understand, even like I talked to, Two rags in Northern California. He's, I guess, uh, near Santa Cruz. And it's, there's a heat wave there also. And he was saying a lot of the apartment complexes and houses, they don't really have AC. It's not right. like here in Florida, everybody has AC, as you know. 
Yeah, as I know. If they found somebody without AC in Florida, they would think they were prehistoric creatures or something. There's no way I could live there without some AC. I mean, Florida, you're running the thing at night, too, you know? Oh, I run it even even more at night. I mean, yeah. So you can, like, you know, get some comfortable sleep. But California is moderate, you know, especially we're talking the coast, of course, you know. The coastal cities, so the closer you are to the beach, of course, more moderate. But um, yeah, most of these places don't have an AC. Of course, if you're in the desert, it's insanely hot there. Oh, oh, yeah. A few miles in, there's a big difference in the coast. You feel it very quickly. How are you coping with the heat? Oh, well, we have a uh, portable unit that we bought. The apartment building here, I believe it is from the 50s. So doesn't have the same kind of insulation that you find in newer construction. So it's not very efficient. So we, we do lose a lot of cool air. But uh, we have a window unit in the big room, and uh, that kind of takes care of everybody up there and keeps it bearable. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but, man, I was talking to you earlier and there's all this noise. Sounds like you're, you know, you're going through. I don't know. You're going through a storm at night or something. But anyway, you, you're in the van. <laughs> yeah. You were so going out to the van because it, it's even cooler than the house or something. Yeah, definitely. You know, you got the the AC there, so you can turn the car on. You know, turn the engine on, crank the AC a bit. You definitely need it right now. Which got me to thinking. Right. Yeah. You remember the uh, the famous Chris Farley bit about uh, being living in a van down by the river. <laughs> right. You know, and uh, you know, it was of course a character that we all made fun of. But with right now, Matt Foley with motivational speaker. Matt Foley, motivational speaker. That well, right. Lottie Frienda. <laughs> hey, Dad. Does that look like Bill's Shakespeare to you? I don't have my glasses on. (laughs) (laughs) So you want to be a writer. I heard you weren't writing. The only thing you were using your papers for was for rolling doobies. (laughs) 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 Well, actually, Matt, we encourage our son in his writing. Dad, I wish you would just shut your big yapper. (laughs) <laughs> Farley was great man I just saw I just saw a, one of those uh, documentaries on him all his brothers are kind of sitting around talking about him brothers he had brothers yeah he had like well, I don't know how many he had but there was like three of them there three or four wow. of them and they were all talking about how he was just so he would do anything for a laugh <laughs> he went to Marquette <laughs> University really Marquette and, yeah and one of his was Marquette Marquette? That's like near, is that near Chicago or Wisconsin somewhere? It's in Wisconsin, isn't it? I don't know if it's in Wisconsin or Illinois. It's check. either near Chicago yeah, or Milwaukee or somewhere in between. I don't check know. Check me on that. Yeah, I have to check that one. I know that sure. Jake, both Jay Crowder and and uh, the guy from the Heat, they both went oh, to yeah. Jimmy Butler, Butler, the one who played for yeah, your Bulls. Jimmy. Yeah, oh, yeah, Mr. Jimmy's tearing it up. Anyway, it's a pretty right funny now. documentary. He was, you know, one of his classmates was recalling a lot of his escapades. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And how he, you know, went to Second City and he gradually, he made it to SNL. Oh, he did Second City, huh? Yeah. I, I think Lauren Michaels discovered him there. Really? Yeah. A lot of, lot of good talent has come out of there. 
So what are you saying? You're living in a van down by the river half the time to get away from the heat? Hey, you know, it's not a bad way to go. Um, we made fun of that character, but nowadays with um, COVID, you know, the economy, the cost of living in California, people are actually doing this. They're actually living in their vans. You know, companies that outfit the vans, you know, put in all the cabinetry and, you know, a bathroom, whatever it is. And, you know, they are very busy right now. And people are actually doing this. You can save money that way, right? You know, you're on the road after you outfit your van. Yeah. Damn. But yeah, I mean, you know, before it was like growing up is getting yourself a house, an apartment, you know, paying the bills, all of that. And people are doing the opposite these days. You know, they're, they're not saying, hey, they're saying that's not like growing up to me. Freedom is uh, really the thing. And they want to have less bills and, you know, less grounded, I guess, to some extent. But it's just a, another way of doing things. It's interesting to see. You know, yeah, until so you start are, having kids. Well, of course, you know. What are you going to do then? It's another thing. Next I mean, thing you know, the, the, the kids will be on some talk show talking about their traumatic childhood. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, hopefully you can do it right. I've heard of families that do that. I've heard of families that, you know, travel the world with their kids. Oh, sure. Like teach them, you know, along the way. I guess they're doing homeschooling somewhat. And uh -huh. uh, I, I've heard of that. Sometimes there's a stigma with that type of lifestyle and people are considered to be grifters or something. But sure. <clears throat> if it's the right parents, it can work. I mean... Look at this. Nowadays, with the way technology has advanced, I mean, you can work anywhere. More and more people are working just from their computer. So if you have a job that's actually giving you steady income and you, you could be anywhere in the world, you know, I'd imagine you could uh, travel nicely with the kids, actually, and provide a good lifestyle for them. Yeah, you're you going to be able to homeschool them, though? Yeah, yeah, you you know, they can do you school online, I guess. That, you and the wife got a tag team at baby. I would think it would be difficult for kids not to have regular friends. Definitely, definitely. You know, especially I when they're going through certain years. I could see like going with the kids along, you know, two or three months in the summer or something. Sure, sure. You know, but I, one of the things I think necessitates, you know, gravitating to that type of lifestyle is that, you know, the average family, they, they have a hard time earning a living wage right you Definitely. know the rents are too Definitely. high the cost of living is too high and they're working like sometimes 50 60 70 hours a week working two jobs and you know some big ceos are making a ton of money and you know a lot of these people there even though they're working full-time they can't you know they can't enjoy anything they can't enjoy I their mean, life it's just like a, you're right <laughs> you're right and i'm no economist but um basically if inflation continues to rise faster than wages. I mean, how long can something like that last? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like, it's a losing battle in the long run. So, well, I think it's basically because it's because those who am, the employers are, you know, they're just, it's just like more for us and less for you. You know, I mean, I don't know. You, you, you told me before you were reading some kind of a, almost like an apocalyptic type of future futuristic novel or something right right um yeah i'm reading this book called uh parable of the sower and it's by uh 
very good writer, Octavia Butler. It's my first book um, of hers that I'm reading. Oh, I thought it was your first book ever. <laughs> my first book ever. <laughs> it sounded like that. Oh, so you, congratulations. You, you're reading books now. <laughs> Somehow I made it through school. I'm not sure how. <laughs> Cliff Notes. Cliff they don't call them Cliff go. Notes anymore. What do they call them now? I have no idea. What? Why aren't they called Cliff Notes? <laughs> they changed the name. The new name? I can't remember what it was, or should I say what it is now? When our kids were in yeah. school, because, you know, for those who don't know, I have a son who's practically speaking the eight, same age as your son, and they went to school together and they played soccer together. Shami came in trying to buy some tickets to uh, Gainesville. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wants to uh, bring the little one over there and show him around. See everyone. Oh, yeah. Show him around and. This is where daddy grew up. Yeah, he wants to uh, he wants to see his boys, you know? His good time buddies. Yeah, his good time buddies. Boys are back in town. Yeah, man. So if you, point is, you'd be lucky to be in a van down by the river. What? You know, running water. Hey, bathroom facilities if you need, you know? Do it properly. What do you mean? Hopefully, uh, uh, I'd be lucky. <laughs> what do you mean? What you, comp- you you comparing that type of lifestyle compared to the novel you're reading or something? No, 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 no. Yeah, of course. At that time, you'd be lucky. But I'm saying, even now, like to have that freedom, a lot of people are actually doing that. And if you could have a spot by the river, boom, all the better, right? You got your laptop. You're working. You're taking the dip in the uh, river. You're chilling. Where are you going to the bathroom? No, no rent. You got to dig a hole, man. You know how it's done. Or, hey, here you go. Compostable <laughs> toilet. <laughs> what do you think? I'm going to become some kind of wild uh, Grizzly Adams type character? Hey, come on. You're, you know, you're talking just, you know, near the city or something. You know, not too, uh, nothing too crazy. <laughs> if I was living down by the river, I'd be like a dead man in two months. You think so? Eating a steady diet of government cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you got to go packing, my friend. <laughs> Security. Ah, you know, I think it's the yogi in me, you know, or the uh, the wandering mendicant. A different tree every night sounds wistful, huh? Freedom. <laughs> it sounds like you'd be attacked by a bunch of mosquitoes and fire ants. <laughs> uh, and you're in California, man. What about bear? A they'll, bear. They'll tear you apart, man. Yeah. Well, I ain't going anywhere near bear territory. You got mountain lions out there? You do. You uh, got your rattlesnakes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I put my hand one time. I was about a foot from a rattlesnake in the dark, and I didn't see him. Where was that? Up in Northern Cal. I lived up there for a little while. Okay. So <clears throat> we had a, a greenhouse, and basically we had, um, it was just made, so we had a tarp over it. So basically it wasn't covered. So we had, we were holding it down with rocks and I was basically moving that rock to reposition the tarp. And I heard, and boy, did I jump back quick. Luckily he didn't strike. He just, you know, warned me. And uh, we found out that he was about a foot from my hand. (laughs) That was a scary one. 
Let me tell you. Where in California was that? It's about uh, an hour outside of Sacramento, near Nevada City. Near Nevada City? Yeah, Nevada City. Okay. Uh, Nevada County. Yeah, beautiful area. The Yuba River flows through it. You're not too far from uh, Tahoe. Tahoe. Yeah. I think they're at the Sierra Nevada Mountain Range. Do you remember Telly Savalas? Tahoe. He would do a commercial. No, I don't remember. Tahoe, baby. I do remember the lollipop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that says Kojak. Kojak. Yeah, Teddy Savalas, right? Kojak. Is that wrong? Did you say Telly Savalas or Teddy Savalas? Telly. Telly. Okay, yeah, you're, you are correct, sir. Uh, heck, I might have said Teddy. <laughs> Kevin Dobson. Kevin Dobson was on that. He was like his sidekick. I don't remember him. I didn't really watch that show. When I came back uh, from India, I remember there were some uh, reruns, I guess, and it was in syndication. saw a couple of them, but I didn't really watch that much. He came from an era, um, a time of a lot of detective shows, police shows, and whatnot. It was Kojak and Mannix and Cannon and the Rockford Files and Beretta and Barnaby Jones. You're forgetting one of the biggest ones. Which one? Ah, just one more thing. Oh, Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, and another thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seemed like uh, every detective show was something like, you know, you know, Barnaby Jones. That Jones, I heard this from a comedian, like, uh, I don't know if it was in the 70s or the early 80s. I don't I, I can't remember who it was. So I'm not lifting this from them. Um, but he said, you know, something like, that Jones guy is snooping around again. You don't worry about Jones. You take care of the body. I'll take care of Jones. Man, that's some stereotypical Hollywood writing right there. Yeah, but when you were, when you were watching that stuff during that time, at least <laughs> me, I thought it was like, you know, rivet, riveting drama. Yeah. <laughs> this week on sure. Barnaby Jones, a Quinn Martin production. Jones is trapped in a house of poisonous snakes, and the only way out leads to more danger. Buddy Epson was in that, and uh, of course he Epson. was from the Beverly Hillbillies. He the was an older guy. Yeah. Right. I did see that show when I came back. It was strange because he, he had like a, I don't know, a sidekick, younger guy. Mm-hmm. He was an understudy, and his name was Jedediah. Jedediah. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember there was some scene when Barnaby was snooping around. He was in, he was in some uh, business office or something. The phone rings. The guy picks it up and says, Barnaby, there's a Jedediah on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Jedediah. That name sounds like it should be on uh, the Beverly Hillbillies. Right. He, his his name was Jed Clampett. Yeah. I wonder if that was yeah, like that was like kind of like a I don't know, a shout out to the Beverly Hillbillies by naming him Jedediah in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was off in India during uh, that time, I suppose. Well, yeah, well, it's probably like the late seventies. So you were born mm-hmm. about in sixty eight, so you were about ten or eleven years old around that. Mm-hmm. Late seventies, yeah. Yeah, man. Long time ago. So you're 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 coping with the heat. You probably had practice yeah. when you were living in India. It's pretty hot over there sometimes. Certain parts of India. Man, you could cook a chapati on the floor in Vrindavan in the summertime. It was hot, no doubt. So usually, if you didn't go home to the west, we took a trip somewhere. Whoever was left, so you basically had to get out of there as opposed to just cooking in the summertime. Ugh. So you were going to it's, the you were going to the 
a boarding school to Gurukul then. And when you say whoever was left, what do you mean by that? Like some of the kids would go back home or something? Right. Some for of a while? the kids would, would go um, home on summer break and uh, some of us stayed for summer break. Um, for whatever reason, we didn't go home, didn't get to go home or didn't have situations that were, uh, some of us didn't have situations were conducive for that, let's just say. So <clears throat> whoever did not go home on summer break, you know, took a trip somewhere to a cooler part of India, north um, Bombay on the coast or Mumbai uh-huh. on the um, western coast. So you have the temperate temperateness of that climate in uh, South India, which I personally really enjoyed. They call Bangalore the air-conditioned city of India. Where's that? Um, formerly known as Bangalore in South India. Okay. Well, yeah. was it known as Bangalore when you were there? Yes, it was Bangalore when I was a kid. And um, I'm hearing now that it's the uh, tech capital of India. So a lot of um, tech industry down there. But the food, oof, fell in love with the food. Mm. Hey, don't mess with my tongue's mind, man. I'm I'm jonesing for some good Indian food. South Indian. What years were you living in India? That was uh, early 78 to mid 81. So three and a half years about. Yeah, about that. Uh-huh. So if it was mid 81, then you basically came back here just before your 13th birthday. Yeah. Yeah. About a month before my 13th birthday. So you went there when you were about 10? I was nine, actually. You were nine. Okay. And where were you before that? Oh, man. Directly before that, I was in L.A. For how long were you in L.A.? About, when did we go there? I believe we came in about June or July. My mom, I remember my mom was pregnant with my sister on Halloween, so probably a month or so before her birth. So about June to February of 78. Yep. And then off to India. So less than a year I was in L.A. Okay. And from what <laughs> age to what age were you in Dallas? Ooh, Dallas. Oh, man. Dallas was about um, five to seven and a half or so. So that's when you first started yeah. going to the Gurukul? Mm-hmm. So you went to L.A. next or somewhere in between? Oh, in between. There was um, Detroit. Went to a little small Gurukul in Detroit for... Again, less than a year, but um, yes, it was Dallas, then back to Chicago, back to Dallas again, actually. So there was twice in that time frame, then back to Chicago, then to Detroit, then to L.A. And then from L.A. to? To India. To India. Okay, so then you're 13 years old almost. You come back from India, and where do you land? Where do I land? Chicago. Back where it all began. Where were you born? Chicago. Okay. <laughs> That's what you mean. <laughs> okay. So you were out of the Guru Cool by that time. Mm-hmm. And how long did you stay in Chicago? At that point? Yeah. A year. Yeah. A year there. What part of Chicago? Rogers Park. That's actually where the uh, temple was. Rogers Park on the north side of Chicago. We lived uh, a block from the temple. So before that, you were in the Gurukul, and you didn't really have much of a experience with American culture, per se. Would you say that's Not correct? at all. That is correct. So did you do any catching up when you got to when you got out of the Gurukul? <laughs> did I do some catching? I did. I did a lot of catching up. Uh, interestingly enough, um, the apartment that we lived in, the back of the apartment 
that led to the alley when you went down the steps. You could go right to the library, which is, you know, they also shared the alley. So I was right, basically right next to the library. So I was able to read on my own then, of course, read what I want to read. And so I read a lot. Then I was getting books from the library. And I was like watching anything and everything on TV. I was just like, wow, this is interesting. So you were like, you were like a TV (laughs) boob tube junkie, but at the same time you were an avid reader? Yeah, both. (laughs) So you were devouring a lot of information. I was, I was devouring a lot of information. Uh, I guess you could say that I was catching up. I was watching cartoons. I was watching, you know, bits of soap operas and the nightly news and syndicated reruns of, you know, everything. I was like learning about American culture, I suppose. So you were having American culture smorgasbord, so to speak. Yeah. You know, and it was all the stuff that, uh, you're not supposed to be doing. So it made it more interesting. Like, Oh, this is, you mean from the, the point of view from? of being a, like a, a Hare Krishna sure, growing yeah. up in the movement. Yeah. Now, growing when, up, when you were there, in an orthodox in, way, right. Yeah. In an orthodox way. Yeah. Then you became more of a right. kind of an of outlier, liar, fringy type of person. <laughs> yes. A, a fringy. I became, you know, an outcast. So <laughs> you have several brothers and sisters. How many of them were living with you in Chicago? Well, when I came back from India, it was just three of them. And then uh, a couple of years later, I guess it was three years later, my mom had the last set of twins. So The last set of twins. So there was a set before that. Yes. Two sets of twins. Two sets of twins. So how many siblings mm-hmm. do you have all together? There are seven of us. And where do you, yeah. where do you fall in that ranking? Number in, two. You're number two. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were basically... Uh, one of you know one of the two oldest kids at the time, right? Yeah, definitely. So I had a lot of responsibility on my shoulders to help my mom out. You know, change diapers, feed little kids, <laughs> all the the work. So you're nurturing your your younger siblings while you're watching a bunch of TV and reading. Is that what was going on for that year? Yeah, I was definitely helping out, but that that was only when there's three of them. After that, I went back to Gurukul. I went to New Vrindavan, so I still had one more to go to. How long did you stay in New Vrindavan? Pretty much just one year. Yeah. Almost exactly. So you went there when you wait was you was like fourteen or something? Fifteen? Uh, yep, pretty much. Okay. I was for, had my fourteenth birthday there and um left right before my fifteenth birthday. So yeah. So you're in Moundsville, West Virginia on the big farm. And how many acres was it then? From what I understood, there was about three thousand acres. Okay. And how many inmates yeah, were there? A, they call them inmates, right? <laughs> inmates. That was a big, uh, a big spot. I don't know if they called them that, but they definitely um, were one of a kind group of folks over there. Rugged, very uh, dedicated, hardworking. Yeah, and but, uh, yeah, they they were really building something big. Yeah, they had pearlpots, piles of gold, and I remember you telling me that you did. You were taught stained glass there. Yeah, that was actually pretty cool. We were all going to uh, learn a vocation. After academics, we would go apprentice with um, one of the craftsmen there. It was pretty cool, actually. I really enjoyed it. You know, gave you something to do, some something with your hands. 
And they actually tried to do it according to our talent. So they asked us about it. And uh, some, like my friend Gory, he was a naturally talented artist. We used to draw all the time. He was sketching. And so um, some of the BBT artists were there. So he went to apprentice with them. And, you know, another friend really liked the cows. And so he apprenticed helping take care of the cows and calves. And had a couple of friends who were attracted to working the big machinery, the bulldozers and the backhoes, all of that. I had um, a friend who was learning welding. He, he was into that. And I don't know if I knew anything about stained glass before that, but uh, somehow I was uh, chosen to apprentice doing stained glass. And so actually the skylight that you see in the temple room now, I cut a lot of those glass pieces to put that thing together because we were working on that. The year that I was there. You mean in New Brindavan? When you say yeah. that I see, I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen, well, I, I was at the temple in 80, I was there in New Brindavan in 82, 82 or 83. And you would have seen it. When they installed the new temple. When they installed the new temple. Yeah, I was there. That was, that was 83 in July. Yeah, that, I was there then. I was visiting yep, from that, New England. That, so was I actually. I was there at the time and you were visiting from New England. No, I said I was there at the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were, uh, so was I, but, um, yeah, you would have seen it because that's when they unveiled that skylight. I was sleeping above that skylight. I was on that floor. Yeah. yeah up there. Yep. 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 It's a bunch yep. of sawdust everywhere. <laughs> I mean, they literally had just finished building that place. Uh, there was probably still aspects of it that weren't finished or parts of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, they put that thing up in a hurry. I remember Sadaputa was up there with his son. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Son? Yeah, son from, you know, from his marriage before he uh, got into Krishna consciousness. Oh, I didn't know that he had a son. Yeah, his son Older was kind of young at the time, maybe 10 or something. I don't know. Mm. And at the, yeah, I was man. I was like, let's see, that's 1983. In July, I wasn't even, I wasn't 19 yet. I was 18. <laughs> wow. 18, huh? Yeah, they had this. I came down with Granny, Granny, and my brother, and uh, Madhava might have come with us. I'm not sure. And I, I remember. uh, Yeah, he did come. He did come. Yeah, it was a crazy scene. They were like shaved up Madhavis doing dandavats in the mud for Kirtananda, things of that nature. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember there was there was like a soda machine. There's some devotee Mm -hmm. drinking a Coke. And the other devotee saying, you're setting a bad example. You're drinking Coke. <laughs> <laughs> it's right here in the machine here. <laughs> uh, that was probably uh, pretty progressive to have a Coke machine there. <laughs> yeah. And Agrani told us, whatever you do, follow the sannyasis around. You're met here for, you, you've come here for association. And be very careful walking by the kitchen because I'll grab you. Sure enough, I walk by the kitchen. Some Madhaji says, what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. <to> Greg. <laughs> oh, that's the magic word right there. Bhakta, let's go. <laughs> hey, do you, you like to come in and do some service to Krishna? Just cut up some vegetables for 15 minutes? Sure, why not? Oh, is that, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. 10 no, hours. Was it actually 15 minutes? <laughs> no, like 10 hours later. You know. <laughs> the sun's freaking going down. <laughs> you were warned, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Just one more bin of zucchini 
in this <laughs> in this bucket of cauliflower and you'll be done. Oh my word, that's hilarious. <laughs> I think the cook cook's name was a, a Dweta or something. Yeah, Dweta. He did a lot of cooking there. Yeah. And so while that was happening, my brother got hijacked by some other devotees. He told me some story about, you know, they had some big cake and they were in like a van and they were like sliding down a mountain and the cake flipped over or something. I can't remember. Some crazy adventure. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's a whole nother, you know, road to go down there. That's a whole nother road. But, um, so you went to, have to wrap it up, my friend. Okay. Yeah, I'm supposed to go uh, hang with the little guy before he goes to sleep. Okay. And I think we're gonna have a little dinner. Oh, it's eight twenty-one there. There's still time for all mm-hmm. these things. <laughs> yeah, there's still time for a little bit of uh, evening life. All right, man. At least for me. So yeah, put a marker in it. We'll continue this thing. Okay. By the way, LeBron went, right, cra- LeBron went, went, went crazy in the Lakers one. Oh, well, no surprise here. He's still jumping with his head above the rim and stuff. 35 years old. <laughs> oh, my he goodness. Freaking took, he freaking took over the game. And I knew it was coming. Nobody could do anything about it. Houston, I don't know, with their small ball and all that, I don't well, know if they've got a shot. Well, they they have to be hot. If they're hitting their threes, they can win, you know. Yeah, that's true. If they miss. the uh, hot four games. It's one game to one now because Houston won the first game. Yeah, so you got to get hot three more times. Well, those guys are pretty good at basketball. Tell me about it. <laughs> Tell me about it. All, All right, right, my friend. Ciao. Da. Ciao. Hare Ram, Hare Krishna. You're listening to the Gargsville Podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. Hello, this is Gargs Allard, host of Power Pop Portal, the Gainesville Grooves, and the Gargsville Radio Hour. I'm here to tell you, you can become just like me with my brand new 777 diet program, as seen on infomercials everywhere. I developed the 777 diet program to make my life simpler, and yours can become simpler too. I will personally show you how to gain 7 pounds in 7 days on only $7 a day. That's 7 pounds in 7 days for only $7 a day. You must not be averse, however, to a diet consisting primarily of pizza and ice cream. That's the 777 program available at Walmart, Walgreens, and across the street at CVS. Tell them Garg's Allard sent you. Hi, folks. It's the old dog whisperer himself, old Uncle Hound, here to tell you about a brand new product of mine called Old Uncle Hound's Vegan Dog Treats. It's just like the treats our dog's ancestors used to eat here in North Central Florida in the 70s. Only they're vegan, and they taste good for both dogs and humans, especially old hippies. Mm-hmm. Just munching on one right now. Tastes good like a vegan dog treat should. But don't eat a full bag of them or your dog might get angry at you and scratch some Lyme disease ticks all over your body. Old Uncle Hound's vegan dog treats are now available in fine pet stores everywhere. Thank you very much, A.V. Urban. Also, a longtime friend of mine since the mid-90s. We played a lot of basketball together, and I just love hanging out with a guy. Anyway, up next is another guy I like to hang out with. Also happens to be one of the smartest guys I know, Kenneth Solomon. And he's talking about the pandemic and the students returning to the University of Florida and given the choice to opt in for a COVID test when a lot of people are of the opinion that 
students should have mandatory testing at least for when they come back. So here's my interview with Ken. Okay, let's get this thing going. Today we have Kenneth Solomon, who works at the MAP and Imagery Library at the University of Florida and has done so since 2006. He's also an old friend of mine. Not, I'm not saying he's old, but we've been friends for a number of years. Full disclosure, since back in what, 81, back in 82? Something, something along those lines. Early 80s. Early 80s, yeah. So he comes to us as a concerned citizen. And as many of you may have noticed, we are dealing with a pandemic and the students are coming back en masse. And, you know, I love the younger generations and everything, uh, but they seem to be arriving something along the line of locusts. So he's done some investigation on uh, certain matters that is very pertinent, I believe, for our entire community. And before I let him take the floor, I just want to read a little thing that he wrote. Um, and goes as follows. And this is in terms of the students come back, coming back to the University of Florida and I believe classes have just started August 31st. We're recording this on August 30th. So I'm making believe we're a little bit in the future. And you'll be hearing this and will be in the past. Anyway, he says, With voluntary opt-in COVID-19 testing, many thousands of untested asymptomatic students will spread the coronavirus throughout the Gainesville, Alachua County area. That's pretty scary. I added that. This will result in people of color on campus and in the community being disproportionately harmed as national statistics bear out. And this is despite UF having the resources to test all students returning to campus, which was the original plan in order to start with a clean slate. Quote, unquote. The current plan depends heavily on students behaving safely, wearing masks, wearing masks, physically distancing, etc. When, even when off campus, and I know that a lot of students will do that, but that chance that all of them will, that was me again, UF through its represent, <coughs> representatives is stating untruths, and this is where it gets a little heavy here, and employing Orwellian tactics to instill a false sense of security about the university's concern and planned for the health and safety of students, employees, and members of the community. And I thought this was important to uh, air here on WGOT um, because it's a situation. So without further ado, Mr. Kenneth Solomon. Thank you, Gargs, uh, for the opportunity to talk about this important issue. Um, as you introduced me, I work at UF, been working there since 2006. I work in one of the libraries, the Map and Imagery Library on the main campus. So as your listeners, I'm sure know that when the COVID started spiking in the spring around the country and in Florida, the uh, University of Florida and all the universities in the state were basically shut down in the middle of spring semester. All the spring classes were 
continued or completed all completely online. Um, all the summer semesters were also done online. Um, most employees, other than essential employees, started working remotely. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been working remotely since March, and I've actually extended my remote work application till the end of the year. So in one sense, this issue is not so personal to me in terms of my own safety because I plan on staying away from campus. But um, it's of concern the way the university has, in my opinion, is not taking the proper precautions to safeguard everyone's health, although they keep stating publicly that the health and safety of the students, staff, and the community is their top concern. So what happened was once we shut down uh, for the spring and knew that the summer would be online, then there was some discussion from the governor's office and a bunch of the universities in the state of Florida. What about the fall semester? We, we can't stay closed forever, even though we know that there won't be a vaccine for some time. What are we going to do? So at the end of April, there was a University of Florida Board of Trustees meeting. And at that meeting, which we've seen the transcripts from. That's April 28th. April 28th. Um, there was a meeting. And then shortly after the meeting, there was some media uh, interviews of the chair of the Board of Trustees, as well as Dr. David Nelson, who is the UF Senior Vice President of Health Affairs and the President of UF Health. So at that meeting, uh, the UF Trustee Maury Hosseini, the chair, he said, we're going to do everything we can to bring our students back. Hopefully we'll be able to do it, but we will not do it at the cost of lives, staff, students, or faculty. So that was a reassuring statement when I read that. And then the article continued that Dr. Nelson, UF Senior Vice President of Health Affairs, outlined a phased reopening where low-risk faculty and staff would be the first to head back to campus, then graduate students, followed by other employees, then undergraduate students would be the last to arrive. They would show up in waves with every student being tested for the virus. From there, university would only test people exhibiting symptoms. That would allow us, this is a quote from Dr. Nelson, that would allow us to start with a clean slate. And in the minutes of that same meeting, the board chair, Husseini, thanked Vice President Nelson for his report and asked, in his opinion, with the goal of fall student return, whether UF Health could test all the students who return to campus. Dr. Nelson confirmed that UF Health has the capacity to perform a one-time COVID test for all incoming students for the fall semester in a staged approach. And from there, there would be a reopening plan, which would include social distancing, uh, monitoring for flare-ups, and so on. So that was also very reassuring. That makes sense. Start with a clean slate. Okay. Especially since we know although we don't know everything about this virus, it's very new, but it has been shown to be spread by asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people. So that's important to test as many people as possible to catch those who are infected, even if they're not exhibiting symptoms before they spread it to others. So a few days later, UF Health posted a video of Dr. Nelson explaining their program, and it was entitled, UF Health to Gear Up for Test and Trace Program. In that video, which aired on May 1st, and which is still up on his website and UF Health's website. So this was just three days later. Just three days later. He said, the goal is simple. New COVID-19 infections can be controlled and reduced to manageable levels 
by expanding testing initiatives to test everyone, quickly isolating those who are infected or those who have been exposed to someone who is positive. So I was feeling pretty uh, secure in that these guys know what they're doing. They're going to test everybody so that they're going to start off, with, as Dr. Nelson said, with a clean slate. And then if someone has symptoms and uh, they would test those people and then they could contact tracing by contacting people who may have been in close proximity to those people. And this way, keep it under control through isolation, quarantine, and so on. So then within a few weeks, though, in May, um, as we were having our weekly virtual town hall meetings in the library, the dean of libraries explained how we were going to be, in order to return to campus, all employees would have to be screened with a questionnaire, and then we could get tested. We could opt out of getting tested if we didn't want to, but they were encouraging it. So, so I asked, I said, I thought the testing was going to be mandatory. And she said, oh, no, no. The testing can't be mandatory. That would be illegal. So I thought that was rather strange, but I accepted what she said. And I said, what about students? I thought all the tested students were going to be tested. And she said, no, as far as she was new, it was going to be the same for students. They can't make people get tested. Um, it's voluntary. And there was no acknowledgement whatsoever on her part about what Dr. Nelson had well, said earlier. Well, no, they weren't. Not everyone's following all the details. I mean, I somehow, it caught my attention. I saw an article in, in, in the newspaper, I believe it was a Tallahassee newspaper, and that's where I saw the information about the meeting. Or maybe somebody posted it on our internal email. So I was like alarmed, actually, that they seemed to have been changing the plan. So I started looking into it. And by the way, I drive Uber. And the students are coming here en masse. Some of them are wearing masks. A lot of them are not. They want to socialize. They want to get down. They want to party. Um, you know, some of them are very sensible, but it looks like a disaster waiting to happen. Right. But anyway, go ahead. I'm right. sorry. Well, it's all well and good to, I mean, to have rules. Like, for example, on campus, in classrooms, in the libraries, and so on, there, there will be uh, enforcing wearing masks and physical distancing. Um, but when students are off campus, then who knows? I've, apparently, there are some move amongst the, the city commission and UF to try to monitor like house parties and gatherings and so on and so forth. So that's a good thing, but it's a question of how effective it's going to be. So that's depending on the behavior of people. Now, just as an example... Just, just in uh, late July, the CEO of um, UF Health posted a video about how 150 UF Health employees were currently at that time being quarantined because they had all tested positive for COVID-19, not from getting it at work, but actually from various social events that they had been to weddings parties etc cetera, etc cetera. so it seems a little naive to think that if <clears throat> excuse me you have health employees who are nurses doctors and other medical professionals are not following the rules in their social life and so on and they're older supposedly uh, 
on the average more mature individuals one would think so what to speak one would of, hope so <laughs> that it's it's also that's their job to be dealing in the health care situation as well as being quarantined and so on affects your job and so on and so forth so just the idea that students are going to and i'm not down on students i'm not like some old guy on the porch you know get off my lawn um you're not no. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. So uh, it's just, it just seems odd that they have the, you know, like they say, we have the technology. We, we do. They're from the very beginning. They said that they were going to test everyone to start with a clean slate. They said they had enough resources. I happen to also know someone who works at U.S. Pathology Labs. And all spring, he said, yep, we're gearing up to being able to do like one to 2,000 tests a day. And just... When they were still, you know, promoting how safe everything that everyone was going to be, they also mentioned from UF Health that they were up to being able to do one to two thousand tests a day with the twenty-four hour turnaround, twenty-four to forty-eight hour turnaround time on the so results. That seems to further indicate that was the plan. It would seem that way. That's that's what the person I know who works at the lab. He would. That's what they were told. You know, we're going to be testing so many thousands of people a day. So it seems like what happened was the governor's office came out with what they called their blueprint for reopening for the 12 state universities. And in that blueprint, it talked about voluntary testing. And it also mentioned that each university could adjust the plan accordingly. So I'm reading between the lines that there was pressure from the governor and the governor's office, which is the board of governors, which run, which overseas universities that they didn't want to have mandatory testing and i wonder why well that well i mean there was just an initial mandatory testing it wasn't like regular mandatory right. testing well i wondered that same thing myself Garth. i guess great <laughs> minds think alike so after here in the initial announcement by the dean of libraries that the testing was going to be voluntary i started doing some research and I went down a rabbit hole of both state, federal, and university bureaucracy. I spent a lot of my spare time uh, researching this in uh, mostly in May and June. And I know you're not going to tell me that it turned out the leaders of the state are actually reptilian or something. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> they had epidemiologist in charge of the screen test and protect program his name is dr lozardo so <laughs> I, I tell you no lie <laughs> so you can i was just making a joke well his name is dr Lo lozardo you can draw your own conclusion about dr. that lozardo i'm so, sure he's a great man i'm sure he is and he, he gets compensated well as a matter of fact although it's not really relevant but dr nelson he is the, one of the highest, if not the highest paid employee at the University of Florida. His salary is higher than the president of the university. Now, of course, university presidents have other perks and things that they get, but just in, you can look it up online. Like they get good tickets to football games. Yeah. But anyway, Dr. Dr. Nelson, not that there's anything wrong with that, but Dr. Nelson's salary is over $1 million a year. So he's a, he's a man of great power. And I had a lot of respect for him when I heard his plan. But then later when the plan changed, 
um, I got a little bit perturbed, especially when he basically lied at a board of uh, county commissioners meeting, which we'll get to in a minute. Anyway, so I started doing the research, um, and I found out that the EEOC, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, had come down with a, uh, not an edict, but a, a ruling that employers could have their employees have mandatory testing for COVID-19 before returning to work because it affects the health of the other employees. And the only caveat is that everybody had to be treated equally. You couldn't just say, oh, you have to be tested and you're not tested. Everyone had to be tested. I said, uh-huh, I got them. However, I called the EEOC. It turns out that that's for private employers. Okay. U University of Florida as an institution, a state government employer, is, doesn't come under EEOC. So I said, well, what does it come under then? So I called OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Hazard Agency or whatever, the federal agency. And I said, well, what's the, what's the story here? You know, EEOC says they don't govern uh, state employers or what. And OSHA said, well, we make the rules that include government employers, but in Florida, we don't um, enforce it. Every state has a different thing. And in Florida, it's enforced by the state itself. So it's kind of like this, this, the state enforcing its own rules against itself, which, of course, seems to be, you know, a loophole. But when I told him what the story was, he said, really, that uh, they're saying that they can't test employees? He says, what about pre-employment drug tests? They don't do that? And I said, no, they don't do that either, um, which he was very surprised. He says, that's interesting. I work for a federal agency, and I had to get drug tested before I started working. I also asked my wife, who works for the county, Latchua County Library District, and she had to get a pre-employment drug screening. And when I looked up on the website, sure enough, it says, you know, all county employees, it's part of the employment process, you have to get a, a drug screening test before you're hired. And so when I did get through to the, so I started also investigating within UF, and I talked to the UF Human Resources, and I talked to one fellow over there named Brent Goodman, and he said, oh, no, no, we can't have mandatory testing for employees because we're a government uh, employer, and it's the Fourth Amendment. We can't go against the Fourth Amendment. It's a constitutional issue. That's the same reason why we can't do pre-employment drug screenings. So they have this circular reasoning that because of their state agency, a government agency, the Fourth Amendment protects their employees from undue whatever, that's like undue search and seizure or whatever. It's considered unconstitutional in their opinion, whereas the county doesn't find that, neither does the federal government. So for some reason, Florida does not require their employees to get pre-employment drug testing. And based on that same... That's a relief for me. And based, on, <laughs> <laughs> based on the same philosophy, that's why they can't do mandatory testing. They kept saying it was illegal. I kept talking to people and they say it's illegal, illegal. Now, finally, eventually, when I got my question asked at a, another meeting, the chief counsel, Amy Haas, chief general counsel for University of Florida, she didn't exactly say it was illegal. She said, well, there's constitutional issues and enforcement issues, so we decided that we're not... So it's not really illegal. They, they made a decision 
what I don't understand, and I asked a number of different times, how is it that initially Dr. Nelson talked about mandatory testing both for students and for employees? Now, as far as students go, we know any of you out there who are parents in Alachua County, students have to get immunizations in order to go to school or at least get some kind of exemption for religious or other reasons. So students can be forced to get immunizations in order to go to school. Why can't university students be required to get tested for a communicable disease before they return to class? It just doesn't make any sense. And not only that, and at some point, they may be forced also to be immunized if they come up with a, with a uh, vaccine in order to go to school, yet there can't be testing before they come. Yeah, doesn't it, I mean, I mean I, obviously, it's voluntary. They can be tested, but it's not it's, mandatory. It's not mandatory. Right. So, so, I went, so, so when I was going through these different, uh, talking to UF uh, HR, and then I talked, uh, as far as the students, they said, oh, you talk to, talk to Steve Orlando. He's the vice president of communications. So I, I called him. He actually called me back. And he said, well, if you talk to Brent over at UFHR and they say they've heard that it's, they can't do it for legal reasons, well, they, they must know what they're doing. So basically, it was, you know, he's just giving the party line because that's his job. Um, okay. So then... Uh, UF said, well, if you have some question about it, you know, you need to get to the general counsel. So I, I, I called the general counsel's office and they said, well, you, you should send us an email. And I sent them an email and then they, re they said, oh, he's an employee. We're going to refer you back to employee relations, which they did. And then I took a while to get through to them. And they said, I explained, I said, this is not an employee relations issue. This is a legal issue. So after two weeks more of getting, you know, the runaround. The runaround. They sent it back to the legal counsel's office. And um, I did get a response from Ryan Fuller, who's one of the, legal, the general counsel there. And he said, oh, well, just stay tuned because they're going to finalize the plans next week. This was in July. So just, you know, wait until the... So I said, I know I've seen the draft plan. You, I have these questions. You're not answering them with questions. I have these questions, which I've been asking for a number of weeks. Initially, I sent them back to the Board of Trustees because the Board of Trustees came out with their draft plan, which was very similar to the template or the, the um, model that was given by the governor's office, which went from mandatory testing to voluntary testing. Now, the caveat is... The screening is required, but the screening, they just ask you two questions. You know, do you have any of these symptoms? Have you been in contact with anyone who tested positive for COVID-19? I get you, that all the time. If I go to a doctor's appointment, right. whatever, yeah. easy to pass that. If you say test. no, then you're in. And then with employees, they said, now you can schedule a test. Or do you want more information? Or do you want to opt out? And so you had one of those three choices. Now, employees were greatly encouraged to get tested. And apparently about 70% of the employees got tested. Okay. Now, students... It's not the most comfortable test in the world, but... No. At least 70% agreed. Yeah, they did. And that's because, again, these are people where it's basically your, your supervisor more or less said, you know, you should get tested. Ultimately, it was optional. And it was... But because people... Well, first of all, we're talking about people and their jobs and they're older and they... 
got tested. Right. Well, 70%. Although the, the recent figures on this public dashboard at UF seem to contradict that. It's, it's very confusing the way they're presenting the information. But anyway, but with, with students, I've, I've gotten some students to send me the emails that they got when they were talking about returning in the fall. And they do say that you're going to get screened. And then they just say, and you have the opportunity to get tested if you want to. So with us, with the employees, it was kind of like opt out. Like you can schedule a test or if you can opt out. With the students, it's almost like get screened. And then if you want to opt in. Because, so that's kind of what. So do, do you know how many students actually opted in and got tested? Uh, as a matter of fact, I do. According to the latest information on the dashboard, they call it the UF dash, UF COVID dashboard, UF Health. They say about eleven thousand students opted in, which is about twenty percent of the fifty. That's about fifty-two thousand students they're expecting back. So you mean back in the town of Gainesville? Yes, yes. The vast majority, even though two-thirds of the classes, but are, there's still time for them to opt in. No, the, they've already been screened. I wow. Think, in other words, they, they, they're saying that st students are going to get tested, but very few have because why would they if they're young and they're healthy and they think they're invincible? Again, I'm not, i got to get off my porch here. But um, generally speaking, the students are not getting tested. And, and as we know, with COVID-19, you can be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So in other words, asymptomatic is you can have it and you have no symptoms, or you, you can have it, but the, for the first week, you don't have symptoms. But during that time, you, you are able to infect other people. Now, when I was young, I used to think I was very invincible, and I was kind of like, uh, I was, I'd be worried around all these kids who thought they were invincible. It well, was, was an uncomfortable situation. Right. Well, there are, you know, there, there, like I said, it, it seems like about 20% uh, students did choose to get tested, but a lot of them haven't. So where is, what, what, what could happen? What could possibly go wrong with all this? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just let, so that I'm a fixed 56 year old guy who right. you might've noticed is a bit overweight. Right. Uh, you know, it's concerning. Yes. Now there, and you're not the only one. There, there's many people in the community, including the Board of County Commissioners and the uh, City Commissioners. They had a joint public virtual meeting on July 15th, which I attended. And there was a lot of very concerned citizens out there. There was people who seemed even more concerned with me and more like, you know, saying things like, are you guys serious that you're just going to like open up the campus and we're going to have 50,000 Students come back into town. How many people are going to have to die before you put a stop to this? And they, and, the, and they answer like, well, we don't actually put it in those terms. It's more in terms of like the medical uh, infrastructure, how many hospital beds. So basically they're saying we know people are going to get sick and we know people are going to die. But we just have to keep the numbers reasonable so that UF can continue because there's a lot of money involved uh, with keeping the institution going. So the point is that I didn't, I've tr I had these questions. I tried going through UF, talked to the communications department. I talked to UFHR. I talked to um, the legal counsel. And basically, I never got any real answers. 
I initially gave feedback to the board of trustees when they were still formulating the plan. And I asked these questions and raised these concerns. Of course, I didn't get any, any kind of response back. However, when I sent those concerns and questions to the board of trustees, I copied a number of people, including University of Florida president, Dr. Kenneth Kent Fox, uh, Charlie Lane, who is the, um, one of the senior vice presidents, and Joe Glover, the provost, Deandra Mull, who's the, uh, she's in charge of the student affairs, as well as Steve Orlando and the other people I talked to. So I sent numerous inquiries and questions to different departments and different agencies, different to the trustees and so on, copying all these people at UF, did not get a single response. The only person that I talked, got actually like I got a call back from was, was Steve Orlando. Cause so he's the communications guy and he's good at communicating. So at least he communicated, but he doesn't have any information beyond what he's told. So that was not very helpful. But no one else had the common courtesy to respond at all. And the legal office, all they said was, look at the plan when it comes out, rather than answering the questions about the plan. So I basically got brushed off. I went to a number of town meetings where some of these questions were asked. And again, they were either ignored or just got the same party line. Well, you know, we, we considered the legal question and we decided not to test people because we don't want to. Um, so do you think that they're aware of your questions and your concern? Or do you think they're, they're uh, just somehow it's just such a big machine that you're kind of like falling through the cracks? I think they are aware. Um, I think they're purposely ignoring it and there are people with great power have great financial resources and they feel they can just ignore the little guy now like i said that solomon guy is snooping around again yeah, yeah. you don't worry about solomon i'll take care of him <laughs> well there was some concern actually my wife said what are you doing this for you're because i'm also about to, to retire early next year and she was concerned that somehow or other they were going to take my pension away etc cetera, etc cetera. so i actually checked into that and if you work for the state you have to do some pretty bad stuff to get your pension taken away so even if somehow or other they considered me to be a rabble rouser, a rabble rouser and try to get me fired I'm, I'm willing to like lose a few months worth of salary because i'm getting ready to retire but in the meantime there was that july 15th Board of County Commissioners meeting and, and Board of City Commissioners where they opened it up to the public. I asked the question because Dr. Nelson and, and Charlie Lane, they were the representatives of UF that were answering the questions. I asked the question and he basically lied because he said, because I asked the question about, you know, like what I've explained, how, well, how come at the Board of Trustees meeting on April 28th, you said you were going to test everyone, start with a clean slate, blah, blah, blah. And now that now, you know, the thing was changed and now it's only voluntary. So when the moderator, he writes down the questions and then later he asked the question to um, Dr. Nelson. And I actually have that here I don't, just so I can give you the exact thing here. I don't want to take too much time here, but oh, here. So. He, so he asked the, the, the chair of the meeting asked Dr. Nelson, let me ask a question about initially when you said everybody should get tested and later it became people could volunteer to be tested or opt out. 
So what is the current policy and what was the genesis of that opt-out provision? Okay, so here's where, where Dr. Nelson, million dollar salary. Again, nothing wrong with that, but. <laughs> I like to have a million dollar salary someday myself. Right. So this is what he said. So the current policy has been the previous policy, which we stated very clearly at both the Board of Trustees as well as the document to the Board of Governors and subsequent communication. 100% of students and employees will be screened, which they undergo the screening questionnaire. And there are mandatory people who have to be tested. So it's true that if you, if you say that you have symptoms or you've been in contact with someone, then you do need to get tested. And if you're a student and you work in the health uh, science area where you're going to be with patients, or if you're doing research where you're going to be doing uh, uh, with humans and you're not, you can't do social distancing and so on, then you have to get tested. The athletes are all getting tested. So they are making certain people get tested, but not other people. So again, when you say you can't make people get tested, they're making some people get tested, but they're not making all people get tested. There's going to be a lot of untested partiers out there. Yeah. So... But so it really bothered me that Dr. Nelson basically lied because his video is still on their website where he says that we're going to, everyone's going to get tested. And then he says, oh, that was never our plan. And that was what he said at the meeting. You better download it before it gets I, taken down. I have done all that. So basically, part, and when I say Orwellian, it's that they say, we're going to start with a clean slate. We're going to test everyone. And it's called test and trace. And then later when it comes out, it's called screen, test, and protect, which basically means, you know, it's not no longer stressing the testing. And then later they say, well, you know, you can opt out if you want, if you're an employee. And then, then later it goes with the students. Well, you can opt in if you want. And so it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And then Dr. No Liz longer stress in the testing. Yeah. So... Then Dr. Lazardo, who's actually the, the head epidemiologist who's in charge of the test, uh, the screen test and protect plan, he comes on to, we had a library um, town hall meeting, and he starts quoting FDR about World War II, where he says, the only thing to fear is fear itself. And the thing that scares me the most, he says, about this whole thing is people being too afraid Yes, people are going to suffer. People are going to get sick, but we're going to get through this. And again, they asked them, like, what about, like, at what point do we have to close down again? And, and there's like, well, you know, we're just going to try to keep the, the numbers low. And uh, in an article in the Alligator, uh, Steve Orlando was asked, well, what happens if a, if a professor gets sick or dies? Then what's going to happen? Are, you gonna, are we going to shut down? Oh, no. We have, uh, we have uh, plans where, you know, if one professor can't continue, we'll get another professor to c continue instead. So it's all very by the numbers. It's all like about keeping the thing going. Might uh, be an open one for me later. It could be. And then just, and then just last week. Not after this interview, though. <laughs> yeah. And then just last week, uh, Dr. Fox, he did his... Um, State of the University Address on August 25th, which this is also a, a video that you can watch, and they have a transcript. And he says, uh, part of it, 
COVID will certainly be with us throughout the fall semester, and we should be prepared for many cases, quarantines, and isolation. If only 1% of our students test positive and 1% of our employees test positive, that is more than 500 students and 300 employees. This would result in 800 people being in isolation and thousands in quarantine due to contact tracing. Wow. Likely many in hospitals. This is extremely sobering. And at the same time, later he says, UF Health has guided us from preparing for the fall, and now we are all implementing that plan, including a rigorous campaign to assure compliance by all with the requirements and policies that will help us stay healthy. Our epidemiologists and healthcare experts are continually enhancing our testing, tracing, treatment, and COVID plans. Even with the tremendous guidance of UF Health, the decisions aren't easy. Our highest priority is keep our UF community safe and healthy. So I, I do some other work besides, I do some volunteer work. I do work with cows. Gargamuni, Gargs is aware of that, and he wanted to bring that up. I said, let's leave the cows out of it. But now that I'm reading these statements by President Fox, I can't think of anything but you know, the, one of the products of the cows, you know, which is BS. I don't know what, kind of, what policy you have on your radio station, but we'll just say everybody knows what BS is. And the thing that, that, that Gargs also mentioned about being you know, a mature, middle-aged Uber driver and concerned about his health, yes, older people are much more prone to get this COVID and it being a serious thing, ending up in the hospital or worse. Not only that, someone with pre-existing health conditions. Like ending up trapped at Disney World. Something like that. <laughs> um, but it's also shown that those who are less fortunate or less economically stable and people of color, uh, especially African-Americans, they are much more prone to get a serious case of this and also die. There are statistics that show, I think it's like two or three times as much chance of um, being hospitalized and dying for African-Americans. And get, I, I've heard that one of the reasons is because they have a lower level of vitamin D, right. which is like an important part of your immune system. If you have low levels, then you have much more of a chance to uh, become sick from this virus. Right. So there, there's that and there's other health conditions because of, the, of certain tendencies in certain populations for obesity, diabetes, and other conditions, which make you... High blood pressure. High blood pressure and so on. So... At the same time, when they're the, talking about all this, Dr. Fox also mentioned, because in the middle of COVID, we had the, the murder of, of George Floyd, and UF came out with these statements about how we're going to you know, re-examine all our, the names of our buildings and this, that, and the other, and institutional systemic racism. So he, fi he also says in this, uh, this address from last week, finally, we also face long-term persistent threats that we must address. The first is systemic racism. This is the year in which, we must, in which we must and will address this threat. This threat is real. Like COVID, racism threatens our university and our personal well-being, and therefore we must fight racism with the same energy and focus as we fight COVID. Now, you could take that in a number of ways. One way is that if they do it the same way that they're doing it with COVID, then basic meaning like they're just watering down their testing plan, then it's just going to be more platitudes and other things about rooting out racism because the statistics, as we mentioned, the statistics show that people of color, especially black Americans suffer 
disproportionately from COVID. And if you look at the um, people at UF who are the custodians and other physical plant employees, they're disproportionately people of color. And those are the people that are cleaning up after the students, doing all the disinfecting in the classrooms, in the bathrooms, and so on and so forth. And then you also have frontline people in the community who work in restaurants, grocery stores, and other facilities that students are going to go to, or, and Uber drivers as well. So you've got vul vulnerable people that are, that are going to be coming in contact with this huge influx of students. And, and once they get some alcohol in them, their inhibitions and their um, you know, precaution, safety precautions right. kind of start to go out the window. Right. Well, other universities around the country have opened earlier. And, and time and time again, you, every day you can read a new outbreak in a, in a sorority and other universities where they actually opened and then they closed down. And that's the thing that really bothered me very much about this. Does it also irk you? irks me and curls my tail. <laughs> now, the, the, and the reason is that, and now, now we're going to kind of get a little bit into politics because it's hard to separate all this from politics. If we look at, at the way the federal government under our president, kind of almost, it's hard to say that, under our president. Our illustrious president. Our illustrious president. The way that it was handled, the way it was or mishandled and mismanaged and is still going on has caused many unnecessary deaths and untold misery for people both economically and otherwise. Florida, the state of Florida, as we know, with Governor DeSantis, who's a great acolyte of President Trump, is following in the footsteps and it seems that from his office in the Board of Governors, put pressure on the university systems to not have mandatory testing because that gets into the politics of like, we're Americans, you can't make me do this, you can't make me do that. We're a free country. So that's what I call it the... Free to infect others with COVID-19. Right. So to me, it seems like that the UF's plan was Trumpified or maybe desanticized to coin a couple original ideas. Um, and it's the same thing. I don't understand how UF can think that it's better to give in to this political pressure and have voluntary testing, risking huge outbreaks. Forget about the community and forget about, you know, the, you know like this, that's just Gainesville's problem. You know, we do so much for Gainesville. If UF, well, they just have to, you know, Take, it, take the bad along with the good. But just looking at the university itself, if after two or three weeks, as we've seen in some other big universities around the country, they have to completely shut down again, that's going to be more costly and more of a disruption than if they would have just had a more rigorous testing program. Yes, the initial test wouldn't solve all the problems, but as Dr. Nelson said way back in April, at least it would be starting with a clean slate. In reality, studies and models have shown that there should be recurring testing um, actually quite for everyone, like even twice a week or something like that. Now, at this point, they don't have the facility to do that or 
the uh, number of tests available. There are some universities that are smaller universities that are trying to do that. But in general, the idea that you have to keep saying that the health of our students, faculty, staff, and the community is our highest priority and that we're doing the best we can. We've got this you know, world-class UF health system and the best doctors and the best system. That is just, as I said, a big pile of BS. And they're not, their hands are tied. I mean, political pressure coming from the governor's office has to do with funding. A large portion of the funding for the university comes from the state. And the state means the legislature and the governor. So that's why at this point, I don't have any direct evidence, but I, I think if someone wanted to investigate, we could probably find some things that show how the pressure was put on UF to do away with the mandatory testing and go to the voluntary testing. You don't need to be a rocket accountant to figure that out. No. Okay, just to play the devil's advocate here, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, of some of these individuals who you've mentioned who may have uh, the best intentions and they want things to go as smoothly as possible, but they're getting paid and they're getting orders from their higher-ups and maybe to some extent their hands are tied and they're trying to be diplomatic about the whole thing. So uh, what do you have to say to that? Well, I think that's the case. I mean, I had met... Dr. Fox, when he first came, came to our library, and I've seen him do some things that are unconventional, but very, seem very sincere and uh, very concerned about students and staff and so on. But I just think that it's, you know, this is a, a political economic situation. It's a big university. If, if you want to look further into Dr. Fox's uh, state of the university, uh, he talks a lot about money and numbers and how we're, you know, right now we're number seven, you know, the U.S. News and World Report Public Research University, we're at number seven and we're trying to get up to number five and we broke records last year with the amount of research money we got and alumni also have been giving in hand over fist more money. So there's a lot of money involved and there's a lot of prestige involved and obviously they, they, they're more concerned about that than, like even he said, he's even saying, like, well, if 1%, even if 1%, and it could be more than that, but even if 1% of our students and employees get uh, COVID, that's going to be over 800 people, and some of them are going to end up in the hospital. And what he didn't say is that some of them are going to end up dead. I mean, just statistically, that's going to be the case. So the, the, it becomes very clinical, and not in a medical way, but in a way of like, look, we're running this, you know, multi-billion dollar institution here. And I get paid a lot to keep it going. And the people who are supplying a lot of that money, namely the, the state government, the legislature and the governor's office, they basically, they, when they say jump, we say how high. And remember, Florida is a swing state. It has decided an election in the past, a presidential election. And if the economy is not going well right. by election time, um, it, could, it could mean the difference in you know, who is in the Oval Office. Right. But that is, see, I'm not saying, like a lot of other universities around the country have, they made the decision early on, 
you know, earlier in the summer or even late spring, we are going to be online in, for the, to finish the spring online, summer online, fall online, then we'll see how we're doing. They already decided, so, but UF and Florida decided, no, we, we would like to reopen in the fall. Now, initially they said, we're not going to do it at the cost of anyone's lives. But now they're saying, well, we're not going to do it at the cost of too many people's lives, but there's going to be collateral damage. Some people will get sick and die, but as long as it's not too many, then that's cool. Well, so, I mean, I mean well, but somebody may say, well, you know, everybody dies eventually and we're doing, this is a situation that's very difficult and we're just doing the best we can. Okay. And if we stop everything, then that will cause problems that will cause other problems. Yes. Therefore, to finish my thought here. Excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Other universe. I, I was not upset when UF said they were, when they said that we're going to open in the fall because I, they started out by saying we're going to have this very vigorous testing program because right. it is true that UF Health is a huge top-notch medical institution. Other universities don't have that. There's other places where they might not have been able to test everyone. UF initially planned to. They had the resources to do it. They changed their mind. See, I'm, again, I'm, I'm not saying they should have gone completely online. I'm saying if you're going to open, then do it as safely as possible, which they claim they're doing, but they're not, and they know it, and they're lying about it. That's my point. Right, and I mean... It wouldn't have hurt at all, and it could only have helped to have the mandatory testing yes. at the beginning. Now, do you think it's because of legal issues that they're not doing it? And if there, it, if so, why don't they just admit that? That that were those are my questions. I was simply asking questions. I said, number one, I see that you that you have said they were going to do it this way, mandatory testing, and now it's changed. Why is that? I've been told it's legal reasons. I asked, I said, what is the statute? What is the law that prevents UF from doing it? No answer. And if it, and if it is illegal, if you do say, show me how it's illegal, then how did Dr. Nelson, who gets paid a million dollars a year, how does he going to the board of trustees and to the media saying that we're going to test everybody? If he, if he knew it was illegal, he wouldn't have said that. And if he didn't know it was illegal, how come, he's, how come he didn't know? So, like, no one wants to, and then if it's not illegal, why are, like, I was told by a number of people numerous times, we cannot test everyone, either employees or students, we cannot make them get tested because it's illegal. That's not true. It's not illegal. Somebody could challenge it, but other places, like other universities and places where they are requiring mandatory testing, I haven't heard of any legal challenges. And even if there was a legal challenge, that's why we have, that's why UF has a general counsel. They, they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year paying for their own lawyers to deal with these things. They made a decision, apparently based on pressure from, the, from higher ups, that they didn't want to do the mandatory testing. I think it's more political than legal, but it could be either or. Either way, that's no excuse. It's no excuse. Say, well, it's the, if it's the right thing to do and it's a safe thing to do, but somebody might challenge it legally, then we're not going to do it. Then that's not a very good, you know, that, then your priorities, again, are like, well, we're more worried about the money and the legalities than 
saving people's lives and keeping people healthy and keeping the university open. Again, it's the whole thing. Why I keep bringing it back to, to Trump. The way President Trump has dealt with COVID has resulted in many thousands of people dying that would, wouldn't have had to die if, if it was controlled earlier. And the economy has been damaged way more than if he would have done it right in the first place. And UF is following the same footsteps, most likely going to have to close down again after a few weeks. And that's just going to be worse than if they would have just tested everyone and kept it under control. But the, so I'm bringing this to people's attention, um, hoping other community leaders, both on campus and off, uh, get involved with this and try to get you have to st step up their testing. They can still test it just because students are back doesn't mean they can't call them in for testing. I mean, they're here, those that didn't get tested. And if they refuse to do that, then at least this should be brought to light that they're, they're choosing not to do the best thing. They're putting people's health at risk and they're not being forthcoming about it. The way they're presenting the program as if we're doing the best we can. And this is all according to the most advanced medical uh, authorities and that we are, you know, thinking of your health first. It's not true. It's just not true. You're listening to the Gargsville podcast with your host, Gargs Allard. I want to thank Ken Solomon and A.V. Urban for being guests on this, the first Gargsville podcast. They are both great conversationalists, possess critical thinking skills, and have good hearts. Perhaps even more importantly, they both seem to laugh at my jokes from time to time. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. Thanks. I know a lot of the subject matter is serious, so I'm not going to continually joke. I'm just going to intermittently joke. Believe me, though, I want this pandemic to go away as much as the next guy, and I certainly hope that this town, this state, country, and world doesn't experience another spike in cases anytime soon. But the situation with students returning to universities all throughout the country is concerning, to say the least, to me, and especially since we live in the university town of Gainesville. At the same time, it's important to not live our lives in fear. And if you can't watch the news without losing your mental equilibrium, perhaps it's better to not watch the news so much. Are there selfish people out there? Sure, but most people are good. I don't know about most leaders. I mean, I think they start out good, but they become compromised. And when somebody does something against the common good, I think often they don't even recognize that they're doing it. So are some of their outer stances different from their inner motivations? Of course, that happens often. But when we talk about evil and demonizing people and even talking conspiracy theories, I think we have to keep both an open mind and be devoid of blind faith, also be devoid of blind doubt, and just take every report on a case-by-case -case basis. If a theory has some credence to it, then we look into it more, and we don't uh, vilify it because of who it's coming from, and we don't 
also we don't just automatically believe it either we shouldn't like completely dismiss it because obviously sometimes these things are completely off or there's just a partial truth there or whatever so a wise person is supposed to be able to take gold from anywhere including a dirty place so i think that's what i am striving to do as much as possible to keep an open mind to be skeptical but not cynical and to understand that i don't know everything anyway Let's kind of jump away from that for a minute. And when it comes to predicting sports contests, for a person, in my opinion, to guarantee a result is totally ridiculous. You know, Charles Barkley has been doing this. I guarantee it. And it's become, or it's gone from something that was sort of humorous to something cliched. And he you know he's not even serious. So you kind of look the other way about it. But, you know, some basketball teams down three games to two and the team that's won the third game seems to have have the momentum and then they go to the analyst and they say there's no chance there's no chance they're going to win and how do you know there's no chance has a team never won two games in a row that had lost a game so maybe there's a slight chance statistics show that it's rarely ever occurred but it's not impossible impossible and no chance last time i looked mean the same thing so just say it's impossible that's kind of makes you look foolish you know they say there's no chance that team a will, will beat team b say it's the clippers and and uh the lakers let's say the lakers are up and they're doing well they're up three games to one and then let's just say for example charles barkley says there's no chance that the clippers are going to come back so when he says no chance he's actually saying it's impossible and if it's there's any chance at all, then it's not impossible. So somebody who says that, you look at them and you think, this is a crazy man talking. Nothing against Charles Barkley. I actually am entertained by him, and I think he has a lot of insight to give, and he has a good heart. So he's. I'm just using that as an example. It could happen to any of us, and you know, probably much more likely to happen to myself, as a matter of fact. Anyway, we were talking originally about the whole COVID thing. And the only thing I want to say is we should be careful and, you know, be concerned about the other person. Now, what our particular beliefs are about something. Erring on the side of caution is the whole idea. So before I go into La La Land, I like to talk a little bit about uh, Uber experiences from time to time. At least when I've had this show played in my mind, I thought that sometimes I would tell Uber stories. So full disclosure, I'm working my way through the College of Life, folks, 56 years old, and I drive Uber. So I picked up two, two young women from Sorority Row, get their rental car, and let's say one's name was Haley and the other one's was Ashley. So they're both in the back seat, and Haley says... You know, Jake hasn't called in seven days, and I just felt so bad that, that I went to bed earlier than usual and just started sobbing. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, and then I found out that Jake was interested in a 17-year-old girl. So the other girl goes, ew. <laughs> and she said, but then my old cat Marcus saw uh, that I was feeling bad and went and cuddled up next to me. And they, then the other girl went, Oh, and then she said, but then when I woke up, there was cat pee all over the bed. And then the other girl <laughs> responded, ooh. 
But I looked into Marcus's eyes, and I knew he didn't mean it. Aww. And that was pretty much the conversation until I dropped them off. So follow that under Strange But True Uber Stories. What I wanted to say before is that I try to enjoy my life as I go along, whether it's something that I would choose to do or something that I kind of have to do out of necessity. I try to make the best of it, and I just choose to be happy in general. If you try to go against the grain of something, some things you can't control, then you're not going to be a happy camper. At the same time, there's nothing wrong while you're in the now to make visits to the future by planning things intelligently and maybe someday i'll get off of uber and i'll be able to just be creative full-time travel the world and write and meet interesting people and tell jokes that sometimes make people chuckle a little and sometimes there's no response but you know as i've gotten older in life i've been trying to model myself after one of my childhood heroes, Bugs Bunny. I love Bugs Bunny because he has a certain air of irreverence. He has a good heart. In, but if someone is coming at him, he, he likes to, to mess with him a bit. But he's detached and he just goes through life, you know. Carrots are divine. You get a dozen for a dime. You know it's magic. So I want to be like Bugs Bunny. That's my goal in life. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a, a professional baseball player. And then I wanted to be a musician. And then I wanted just to make enough money to pay my bills. And <laughs> then I wanted to, you know, write and and express myself. And now I just want to live moment to moment and just make the best out of it. And at the same time, make plans and as George Costanza said, why not us? Why can't we? <laughs> so in that vein, you can look up the Gargsville podcast under Patreon. And if you like, you can give perhaps $1 a month or $5 a month or 10 or 50 or make a one-time donation to the Save the Garg Society. It's actually not to save the Garg Society. I want to be clear. It's uh, to help the Gargsville podcast. And the Gargsville podcast is a good thing because where else can someone sit down in front of a microphone and just say whatever he wants and have somebody bring food to him? Actually, I'm into cooking. And even after, if and after I become famous, I promise to not forget who I was. I will continue to cook. And I will not ever forget my childhood dreams to become a cross between a sports star, a musician, a comic, and probably a superhero. I know there must be one or more rich persons out there who are kind of getting up in the years, but they become wise and they just love the feeling of helping people. And they want to give a kid a break, a kid of 56 perhaps. And, you know, why not? If it makes you feel good, I'm here to facilitate you. I'm here to serve. But seriously, thanks for listening to my first ever episode of the Gargsville podcast. And I'll see you again a little later. Hare Krishna to all and to all. A great night tonight. Day two.
Mobile Listening to E.D. Brickell I could do much worse while driving on this earth I could be lost on the highway to hell Picked up a girl who just woke up She's kind of pretty, she works at Panera She said, thank you for doing what you do I bet you'd rather be in Copacabana If you wanna go somewhere, baby, I could go with you. Uber duber, Uber duber do. If you wanna go somewhere, my lady, I could go with you. I picked up a nurse from Ghana. Her dark chocolate skin is smooth and glowing. She said she don't believe in no Valentine's Day. She just has faith in Jesus because he's all loving and all knowing. I picked up a dude. He had lots of aptitude. He said, I'll navigate you to the cleaners. We talked NBA and all the players today. But his attitude compared to mine seemed to be much meaner. Uber-duber, uber-duber-doo. If you want to go somewhere, baby, I can go with you. If you just want to get out of the house and take a trip alone. sunglasses on he said drive me to the dawn he didn't sound like anything like Casey Kasem so I thought he was a liar he asked me if I'd share my rounds I said no sir I'm in Maya to once again float off into different frequencies, the night dreams and the daydreams. Until the next time we meet again, 
in Gargsville. 